You're listening to Dental Talk from VivaLearning.com. Today we'll be discussing the latest in caries prevention and minimally invasive dentistry. Our guest is Dr. Jean Creasy, a dentist who first practiced as a dental hygienist. As a hygienist, she coordinated a school-based dental prevention program for her rural Northern California county. Later, she earned a DDS from UCSF and studied cariology under John Featherstone, who introduced her to caries management by risk assessment, commonly referred to as CAMBRA. Dr. Creasy has been utilizing CAMBRA principles in private practice for 20 years and lectures regularly on the win-win of a prevention-centered practice. She now teaches part-time at the University of Pacific Dagoni School of Dentistry. Dr. Creasy, it's a pleasure to have you on Dental Talk. Thank you, Phil. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so we hear about Canberra all the time, so we are certainly looking forward to being enlightened on all your years of experience in this field. To begin, what are the clinical indications for preventative dentistry, and why is prevention so important? Well, I think, um, in my opinion, the clinical indications for preventative dentistry, it's kind of like every patient every day. There's always an indication for prevention. I just was working with a student a couple minutes ago, and the and the patient had an obvious need for a root canal. But I took that opportunity to talk to her about, we're going to get you out of pain, but let's talk about what we can do in the future so you don't end up with these problems. Um, I also think um, patients these days are so much more health conscious than they have been maybe 30, 40 years ago. Um, You know, you you can't talk to any of your friends these days without hearing about what new diet they are on that's more health conscious. You see more older people at the gyms. I think people are just more health focused. And as a dentist, if you and having an office philosophy this way, if you're focused on their health and how they can keep it, it helps make you successful. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, we're just seeing more and more prevention going on in dentistry now that we have also more products that could um, work in those areas that can help the patient. Um, So we hear the term risk assessment a lot. Tell us what the term risk assessment really means and, and why that is so important. Well, risk assessment is actually kind of more of an approach to how you look at your patients. Um, it's risk assessment is looking like at all the, the, the signs and symptoms of today to predict what you're going to look at tomorrow. So when I have a patient come in, um, mostly it's visual clues. Some of it you want them to give you information about uh, what they do for their teeth each day as far as prevention habits or what their diet is. You can get a lot of clues. I like to almost think of myself as a diet, I mean, not a diet detective, a dental detective, because that's going to let me know what their disease experience has been in the past and what it's likely to be in the future. And that looking into the crystal ball is one of the most important things that we can do to help our patients. A little bit like you you have your blood pressure screened or you have your blood sugar tested and those are going to tell you, are you more likely to have heart issues or diabetes in the future? So to me, risk assessment is almost more of a medical approach to dental problems. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's totally sensible. In fact, um, the way you were describing it, sound, it sounded very similar to a good medical history. A good medical history is so important in understanding what the patient's condition is at the time when they come into the office. But it's more than just a medical history because you're getting more information to evaluate what the risks are going forward, and that will determine how you treat them, I assume, on the preventative side. Um, Exactly. 
Yeah. So uh, I don't sound like an endodontist, right? I sound like someone who actually did yeah. some, right? There you go. I'm good at, I'm good at uh, listening to our speakers and then kind of repackaging it into some sort of, uh, and it makes me sound smart. But anyway, um, and sometimes it doesn't actually, depends on what I say. Yeah, so it works, but there's a, it's a double-edged sword. So can you describe why treating the existing disease without educating the patient is kind of a lost opportunity? Well, I look at um, a patient coming in who perceives their own need as a real golden opportunity. You know, it's this, it's this um, succinct moment in time when they're actually paying attention to their own dental health. Um, they're the most motivated in those moments, most motivated in those moments to make any change in their daily habits or um, what, how they're going to approach their oral health in the future. When they're during that, when they're experiencing the treatment phase of dentistry, they're sitting back in a chair, they're vulnerable, they're, they're afraid of how much it might cost. They're very motivated to not get there again um, in that situation. So I like to, I really like to use those moments to paint a picture of hope for their future that they're not going to have to, to go through this again. Yeah, that's a great approach. That is a great time to be explaining to them that, okay, this happened. We, we are going to fix this and do the best we can to make it back to perfect, but we don't want to keep doing this and nor do you. So let's, let's right. see what we can do to keep this from happening. I mean, if you don't get their attention there, then you never will. Um, right, exactly. And but, I, I kind of feel like no matter how comfortable we try and make them, how painless we try and make the dental experience, I've yet to hear any patient say, oh, I hope I get more cavities because this is just so much fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, you don't hear that too often. So no. when it comes down to an explorer, now when I was in dental school, that was what we used in the main clinic, third and fourth year, to determine caries. You took an explorer and there were different kinds of explorers. And when you got that catch, there's decay. Now, today they're saying, why, you know, don't use an explorer to determine caries. So I'd like to know what your thoughts are on that. And if you don't, what measurements do you use to determine if caries is present? Well, like many issues in dentistry, the use of an explorer has somehow become a very polarizing question, with, especially in academic circles. And I have colleagues that are so anti-explorer use that it, it sometimes surprises me. Um, I think you can um, overutilize an explorer and it can no doubt cause damage if you're really trying to push it into the pits of teeth. Um, and there are actually more effective ways to determine caries on the occlusal surface than using an explorer, using light refraction and uh, really air drying the tooth, looking for shadowing. When you become clued into other cues, then I think you'll, you'll be more of an effective diagnostician. But I also, at the same time, I think that the tactile feedback that an explorer can give us to confirm whether or not um, there's recurrent decay interproximally under either a crown or a, an existing restoration, I wouldn't want to throw my explorers away um, because at times they are helpful. Right. So is the explorer an adjunct to the device that the text carries or is the device that the text carries an adjunct to the explorer? Well, it, it, I, th I think as a good dentist, you want to have as many tools in your toolbox as possible and then have the discernment of when is the right time to use them. There are some devices out there. There was the, um, the Diphody system. 
I think I'm saying that right. There were a couple of systems that have been used and people like them that use, um, you know, like a special light refraction, but also just visually using your own headlight or, you know, reflecting the light in your mirror. Many times you can see a shadowing that will tell you, um, you know, give you a really good indication whether or not demineralization has occurred. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So getting back to risk assessment protocols, how does one implement a risk assessment protocol uh, system in their office? How do you suggest one formulates a treatment plan based on these protocols? Well, um, there's there's forms. There's a lot of forms you can use out there. Some of them I find a bit um, oh cumbersome in the amount of time it takes you chair side to use. Um, I like the, the the product that Centrix offers. They have a um, a risk assessment form for for patients to use while they're waiting for their appointment. It's very simple. It's like a yes or no questionnaire that they can use, um, and that way the, the you know it's just a quick visual. And I know that they will even come out and do a, a lunch and learn on prevention in your office. Um, so that's kind of a nice deal. If if patients are, if you're interested in that as a provider, they have, um, you can download that at carriesprevention.com. In my practice, I don't use a formal form, um, probably because it's so deeply ingrained in my brain that I don't need to to fill out a form to assess risk. I'm looking clinically at um, the the age of the restorations, their oral hygiene levels, um, I can look for white spots. One of the key things I look for is healthy salivary flow. If someone has a dry mouth, they automatically, you know, it's just very quick visual assessment that I can do during their exam. So well, you, um, have, you I, have those 20 years of experience that um, is so invaluable. Some, some of our providers don't have that experience as far as time goes like you have. So you've probably exactly. seen it. Yeah, you've seen it all. But that, that's very interesting. I know Centrics has a very highly uh, regarded uh, lunch and learn program, and you mentioned it. Yes. Um, and they are the staffs love that too. Oh. Staffs love to go to a lunch and learn. They really like the um, the development, the education piece of that. So yeah, yeah. Um, and Centrix, just to disclose, we always disclose everything uh, on Viva Learning. Centrix is the sponsor of this podcast. However, um, we we make sure that the content that we're discussing is educational value and so forth. But uh, we have vetted the Centrix Lunch and Learn program. It's a very strong program. They come to your office. Uh, you can get a CE credit. And uh, obviously, they focus on this particular Lunch and Learn focuses on uh, risk assessment. And uh, as Dr. Creasy mentioned, you could, you could download this information at carriesprevention.com, as, as she mentioned. So that's something worth looking into. And if you want to get more information on the Centrix Lunch and Learn, contact them. You can just Google them find their website and uh, they'll be happy to help you out with that. So, exactly. yeah, um, mm -hmm. go ahead. I wanted to mention about the forms there. If you just um, look, look up Carrie's risk assessment forms, the, the American Academy of Pediatric Dentistry and the ADA both have excellent forms. And I think it's once you've used it a few times, then you don't necessarily need to be married to that form. I have a paperless office. And so I try and um, put it in my treatment notes. What you know, every exam will have their carries risk level, and whether it's low or high or extremely high, and that's 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 more helpful to me. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I think in a larger practice, 
you know, you want to clone the culture of the office with multiple yep. healthcare providers. And if one leaves and another one comes in, you have a system that can be carried through seamlessly because um, unless we can clone, Absolutely. unless we can clone you, Dr. Creasy, and put you all over the place, because that would be very helpful to the, to the population. So what are some successful business models for implementation of risk assessment in private practice settings? Well, I think it has to be team driven. I think everyone has to be on board with it. And so that does mean investing the time to train everybody so they're on the same page. Um, it, it really helps identify your brand with patients in the community as far as a successful business model. Our practice is was built all word of mouth, one patient at a time, and we really have that reputation for being more oral health um, coaching oriented than repair focused. And I think that really resonates with patients. So focusing on that return of investment and achieving the best oral health as a commodity that you're, you're, that's what you're producing for patients, that's really helped increase our word of mouth referrals. Yeah, I mean, that is so true, um, at least from my perspective. If I went to a dentist office, you know, we live in Austin, Texas, and it had the emphasis on prevention, like you're saying, I'm sold. I'm also like that with my pets. You know, when I go to a veterinarian doctor, I want to make sure that they are looking at uh, things that I could do for my pets that will prevent things. I not necessarily have to treat it once it happens. So this all falls into the same kind of thought process. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So very interesting stuff that you're enlightening us on here. So what are some of the barriers? So you talked about setting up this risk assessment program. What are some of the obstacles or the barriers that our clinicians could face when trying to formalize a risk assessment approach in their practice? And how do you suggest overcoming these? Well, I think that the main thing that stands out to me is the resistance to change that most offices have. When you changed from paper charts to digital, when you changed from um, dip tank x-rays to digital x-rays, every time we initiate new technology or new protocols, it takes a lot of intention on everybody's part and a lot of training and reinforcement. Um, we kind of prefer to do things on autopilot, I think, than, than change the way we do them. So, um, and as an example in my own practice, my staff is pretty good at, at supporting the um, risk assessment or the prevention-focused model. We've always done it that way. But I, I just had an experience recently where I purchased some, uh, some treatment rent that was supposed to, you know, help with the, um, the pH and the and changing the oral flora in my extremely high risk patients. So this would be something I might put something who has Sjogren syndrome on. So I bought the treatment rinse and I meant to have a lunch and learn so I could show everybody the protocol on how to use it. And I real I meant to get back and schedule that lunch and learn. You know, it was on my calendar and it never happened. And then before I knew it, the product had expired before I could even dispense it. And so, I mean, it was like a year and a half later because time flies when you're just thinking of doing something. So I think one of the biggest, um, the biggest barriers is just making the time, the commitment, and the intention that you're going to institute this in your practice and making it happen. Mm -hmm. So Yeah. I mean, it's interesting how you started off as a dental hygienist and became a dentist, which is, you know, really amazing. But then your whole philosophy on treatment is kind of based on what you started with as a dental hygienist, I think, right? Because you were so yeah, it, 
kind of is. And, right. and inter yeah, interestingly, um, because we built our practice that way. And at the time when I was a hygienist, I also worked, I worked for in my husband's practice, but I also worked for a periodontist. And so I was very perio prevention focused. And what, what I, when I go back and I look at the success of our practice today, where we have much more of a um, prevention uh, centered practice than a treatment centered practice in a way, it's not like, you know, we, we do our share of restorative work and, and endodontics and um, implants, but we have five days a week with three to four hygienists each day, which is a huge hygiene practice. And I think that's a result of that focus always being um, putting it more where patients, we might have a bigger volume of patients who need to have less restorative work, but nevertheless, um, where it's still a, a good business model because of that, that hygiene base. We talk about prevention with young adults and children. What about mature adults and even older adults? Um, is there a preventative care system or protocol that is for them? And if you do that, is it covered under the uh, insurance companies as far as reimbursement? Well, as a matter of fact, I actually see very few children in my practice. We have a practice partner who focuses on kids. But I do see an awful, I mean, a, um, a huge number of elderly patients. I see, I'd say, 70% uh, of my patient base is over 50. And, um, and so I do a lot of prevention that's centered on more of a mature population. And that's so key because even people, they might get to 50 years old and they haven't had a lot of caries experience. But then when they've had recession, the maturing mouth is much more high risk. You're more likely to be on multiple medications that decrease your saliva flow. You're, um, again, you've had a little bit of recession where you have roots exposed. And they're, um, I always tell patients that their exposed root area is like the soft pine wood compared to the hard oak of their enamel. Mm -hmm. And that their risk of caries is much higher at that level because people are a little baffled when they haven't had a, um, um, a history of decay. And then all of a sudden in their latter years, they come in and, and you'll, you'll see areas of um, early decay on those roots. So um, we use a lot, we'll put fluoride varnish on our, our senior patients on their roots when they come in for their cleanings. Um, we've even started using silver diamine fluoride on areas that are not in the aesthetic zone for my elderly, elderly patients, patients who are little, um, have more fragile health and are quite senior. It's um, a nice preventive treatment to use the silver diamine fluoride on, on those cases. So you'd be surprised how much the, um, the real elderly seniors have in common with your young children as far as conservative treatments go using fluoride varnish and silver diamine fluoride and glass ionomer restorations. And as far as the reimbursement for the preventative care on the older population, how does that work? Well, the insurance insurance companies will, um, and, and I'll state right up front, about 55% of our patients um, are out of pocket. And so um, my philosophy is do what's needed and um, I really focus on what's best for the patient and not always what the insurance will pay. But get that being said, insurance will, um, they'll reimburse for 
any restorations that you do, they will reimburse for um, silver diamine fluoride, although silver diamine fluoride and fluoride varnish are such a small, um, they're so, they have such a minimal cost to it. Um, patients don't usually mind paying $10 or $15 for an application of um, fluoride or SDF. So um, I, I worry less about whether or not it's going to get reimbursed. My philosophy is that the, the focus on prevention is really my form of marketing. And so even though it takes me some time and it might cost me a little money, I feel like it's money well spent because it turns into to such goodwill on, uh, for my patients. I can't agree with you more on that. You know, that's, uh, that's a great way to build your practice because patients really appreciate that. You know, when you, yes. when you go to a dentist and they're already counting your crowns and telling you how much crown and bridge you need and how many implants you need in the first 15 minutes, you know, you gotta, you gotta think twice about, uh, you know, that dentist and the practice and the, and the whole philosophy. But when someone's really focusing on your prevention, uh, it's a totally different thing. You, you start to, yeah. you believe in that doctor, you trust them, you tell your friends and say, oh my God, I just went to a dentist and the whole practice was based on preventative care, which is what society is moving to now in diet and getting away from gluten and just the, the whole trend of healthcare is is right exactly you know. and I and I find working with patients who have a deep trust in me is a lot less stressful. I don't have to I have to do a lot less convincing when I see that they have a need because they trust me. And so I find that uh, a, less, um, a less stressful way to practice. The other part of that is when patients are, are bought into being stakeholders in their own prevention, they're doing the things they need each day, then your dental, your beautiful crowns that you just did on their anteriors are going to last a lot longer. I, I think there's nothing more heartbreaking for dentists than, than seeing some lovely crown margin that they placed two, three years ago already having recurrent decay. I, I think nobody feels good about that situation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and your case acceptance must be very high for your treatment plans based on the trust factor. In many practices, the hygiene team would like to provide the preventive care to all of the adults, because we just talked about that, how your practice is primarily patients over 50, and you're doing a fantastic job with preventative dentistry. But suppose the dentist who owns the practice is not really uh, interested in running a practice based on preventative protocols for adults. How do you get around that? What, what happens there? I think if, if you're practicing as a hygienist, you have to also um, look at what, what gives you a purpose in your job and what gives you, what motivates you. I can't help but believe all hygienists are very preventive oriented by nature because that's how we're trained. And I think being able to talk to your the dentist who you work with and getting them to 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 see the value, how, why it, their return on investment would be even better with a prevention oriented practice. That's key. So to do your homework and make your presentation, it depends on what kind of practice you're in and what the model is for hygienists that practice um, without an assistant. I'm a firm believer in the one-hour hygiene appointment. It's really the amount of time that you need to do a good perio assessment, a good cleaning, and then have time for a little oral hygiene coaching. So I think during that appointment, hygienists need to be very intentional. 
look at how they're spending their time during the appointment. The bottom line is that um, risk assessment doesn't need to take a lot of extra time. Patients can fill out a survey while they wait for their appointment. Hygienists can assess risk while they're doing the probing, looking at plaque levels, saliva flow. These are all visual clues that should be a part of a normal hygienic assessment. So um, hygienists, don't, you don't need to ask for longer appointments. Um, it depends on what you're asking for, whether or not the, um, the dentist is going to want to go along with um, what your plan is. And, and I can't imagine a dentist who wouldn't agree to offering a better uh, prevention service, a better hygiene appointment for their patients. Yeah, I, I agree with that, too. Um, I'm sure they, if a good case is presented to them, they would certainly understand the benefits, uh, especially the, just like you said, not only is it a tremendous health benefit to the patient, but it's a huge marketing benefit to the practice. To wrap up this podcast, my last question is, and if you could answer this in a minute or so, Dentists are definitely well-trained to provide clinical care. They get that training in dental school. They develop skills through continuing education, hands-on courses, et cetera. But a lot of their training offers little insight into the business side of delivering care. So having said that, how does a formalized risk assessment approach assist in getting the dentist to better understand delivering care on the business side? Again, I think it really comes back to the dentist deciding on how they want to brand their practice. And um, all I can tell you is, again, the success we've experienced by making that our focus, making it a focus of prevention that, um, you know, we've only done word of mouth. We have granted our practice is mature in our community, but having um, three to four hygienists every day, five days a week, booked solid and with you have to wait to get a hygiene appointment. To me, that screams of a, a very foundation of a successful practice, of having a lot of people who look to you when something goes wrong. Um, and I would rather have a practice like that than always trying to find um, like, oh, I think maybe we should replace this. I, I don't want any equivocation in, in whether or not a patient needs something. And I think having a large patient base helps ensure that I'm not under a lot of financial pressure, that I can just treat people the way they need to be treated. Um, I think uh, Economics Magazine, I once read where most practices spend about 6% of their income on advertising, on marketing, and I prefer to use my time in that way. You know, the, the time I spend with patients is it really pays off for me and my practice that, that, that I'm taking the time to talk to them about how they can have their best oral health possible my hygiene team supports that. It's it's kind of the whole brand of our office. Yeah, and uh, you've been very successful doing that. And of course, word of mouth must be much more effective uh, than marketing right. mailer, mailers or doing stuff online. Or exactly. um, yeah, we we do sleep sleep apnea or we. Do, I mean, yeah. those are all. You know, you, it's good to let the community know what your services are, but what you're doing is the best way to get your practice to, to it's grow. It's relationship building. Relationship you know, the relationship building, building mm -hmm. is really what, what drives that loyalty. And them realizing that we're saving them time, we're saving them pain, we're saving them money by helping them avoid disease in the first place. Yeah, very well said. Thank you very much, Dr. Creasy, for your time. We have enjoyed learning about uh, Carrie's prevention and understanding minimally invasive dentistry through through your programs that uh, you've 
instilled into your office philosophy, which is very admirable that you've come from the dental hygiene world, moved into the dental uh, profession as a dentist and carried that philosophy through. And you've been very successful at it. And thanks for sharing all your insight with us. Hope to have you on another podcast and possibly a Viva Learning webinar in the future. Thank you, Phil. It's been fun talking about something I'm very passionate about.